Chapter One of the Middle Temple Murder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter One The Scrap of Grey Paper. As a rule, Spargo left the watchman office at two o'clock. The paper had then gone to press. There was nothing for him, recently promoted to a sub-editorship, to do after he had passed the column for which he was responsible. As a matter of fact, he could have gone home before the machines began their clatter, but he generally hung about, trifling, until two o'clock came. On this occasion, the morning of the 22nd of June, 1912, he stopped longer than usual, chatting with Hackett who had charge of the foreign news, and who began telling him about a telegram which had just come through from Durazzo. What Hackett had to tell was interesting. Spargo lingered to hear all about it, and to discuss it. Altogether, it was well beyond half-past two, when he went out of the office, unconsciously puffing away from him, as he reached the threshold, the last breath of the atmosphere in which he had spent his midnight in fleet street the air was fresh almost a sweetness and the first grey of the coming dawn was breaking faintly around the high silence of st paul's spargo lived in bloomsbury on the west side of russell square every night and every morning he walked to and from the watchman office by the same route southampton row kingsway the strand fleet street he came to know several faces especially amongst the police he formed the habit of exchanging greetings with various officers whom he encountered at regular points as he went slowly homewards smoking his pipe and on this morning as he drew near to middle temple lane he saw a policeman whom he knew one driscoll standing at the entrance looking about him further away another policeman appeared sauntering driscoll raised an arm and signalled then turning he saw spargo he moved a step or two towards him. Spargo saw news in his face. "'What is it?' asked Spargo. Driscoll jerked a thumb over his shoulder towards the partly open door of the lane. Within, Spargo saw a man hastily donning a waistcoat and jacket. "'He says,' answered Driscoll, "'him there, the porter, "'that there's a man lying in one of them entries down the lane, "'and he thinks he's dead.' likewise he thinks he's murdered spargo echoed the word but what makes him think that he asked peeping with curiosity beyond driscoll's burly form why he says there's blood about him answered driscoll he turned and glanced at the oncoming constable and then turned again to spargo you're a newspaper man sir he suggested i am replied spargo you better walk down with us, said Driscoll, with a grin. There'll be something to write pieces in the paper about. At least, there may be. Spargo made no answer. He continued to look down the lane, wondering what secret it held, until the other policeman came up. At the same moment, the porter, now fully clothed, came out. Come on, he said shortly. I'll show you. Driscoll murmured a word or two to the newly arrived constable, and then turned to the porter. "'How came you to find him, then?' he asked. The porter jerked his head at the door, 
which they were leaving. "'I heard that door slam,' he replied irritably, as if the fact which he mentioned caused him offence. "'I know I did, so I got up to look around. Then, well, I saw that.' He raised a hand, pointing down the lane. The three men followed his outstretched finger, and Spargo then saw a man's foot, booted, grey-socked, protruding from an entry on the left hand. "'Sticking out there, just as you see it now,' said the porter. "'I ain't touched it, and so—' He paused and made a grimace, as if at the memory of some unpleasant thing. Driscoll nodded comprehendingly. "'And so you went along and looked?' he suggested. "'Just so. Just to see who it belonged to, as it might be.' "'Just to see.' "'What there was to see,' agreed the porter. "'Then I saw there was blood, and then—' "'Well, I made up the lane to tell one of you chaps.' "'Best thing you could have done,' said Driscoll. "'Well, now then.' The little procession came to a halt at the entry. The entry was a cold and formal thing of itself, not a nice place to lie dead in, having glazed white tiles for its walls and concrete for its flooring. Something about its appearance in that grey morning air suggested to Spargo the idea of a mortuary and that the man whose foot projected over the step was dead, he had no doubt, the limpness of his pose certified to it. For a moment none of the four men moved or spoke. The two policemen unconsciously stuck their thumbs in their belts and made play with their fingers. The porter rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Spargo remembered afterwards the rasping sound of his action. He himself put his hands in his pockets and began to jingle his money and his keys. Each man had his own thoughts as he contemplated the piece of human wreckage which lay before him. "'You'll notice,' suddenly observed Driscoll, speaking in a hushed voice, "'you'll notice that he's lying there in a queer way, same as if—' "'As if he'd been put there, sort of propped up against that wall at first, and had slid down like—' Spargo was taking in all the details with a professional eye. He saw at his feet the body of an elderly man. The face was turned away from him, crushed in against the glaze of the wall, but he judged the man to be elderly because of the grey hair and whitening whisker. It was clothed in a good, well-made suit of grey check cloth, tweed, and the boots were good. So, too, was the linen cuff which projected from the sleeve that hung so limply. One leg was half doubled under the body, the other was stretched straight out across the threshold. The trunk was twisted to the wall. Over the white glaze of the tiles against which it and the shoulder towards which it had sunk were crushed, there were gouts and stains of blood, and Driscoll, taking a hand out of his belt, pointed a finger at them. "'Seems to me,' he said slowly, "'seems to me as how he's been struck down from behind as he came out of here. That blood's from his nose.' "'gushed out as he fell. "'What do you say, Jim?' "'The other policeman coughed. "'Better get the inspector here,' he said, "'and the doctor and the ambulance. "'Dead, ain't he?' "'Driscoll bent down and put a thumb on the hand "'which lay on the pavement. "'As they ever make em, he remarked laconically. "'And stiff, too. "'Well, hurry up, Jim.' "'Spargo waited until the inspector arrived.' waited until the hand-ambulance came. 
more policemen came with it they moved the body for transference to the mortuary and spargo then saw the dead man's face he looked long and steadily at it while the police arranged the limbs wondering all the time who it was that he gazed at how he came to that end what was the object of his murderer and many other things there was some professionalism in spargo's curiosity but there was also a natural dislike that a fellow-being should have been so unceremoniously smitten out of the world there was nothing very remarkable about the dead man's face it was that of a man of apparently sixty to sixty-five years of age plain even homely of feature clean-shaven except for a fringe of white whisker trimmed after an old-fashioned pattern between the ear and the point of the jaw the only remarkable thing about it was that it was much lined and seamed the wrinkles were many and deep around the corners of the lips and the angles of the eyes this man you would have said to yourself has led a hard life and weathered storm mental as well as physical driscoll nudged spargo with a turn of his elbow he gave him a wink better come down to the dead ass he muttered confidentially why asked spargo they'll go through him whispered driscoll search him do you see then you'll get to know all about him and so on help to write that piece in the paper eh spargo hesitated he had had a stiff night's work and until his encounter with driscoll he had cherished warm anticipation of the meal which would be laid out for him at his rooms and of the bed into which he would subsequently tumble besides a telephone message would send a man from the watchman to the mortuary this sort of thing was not in his line now now you'll be forgetting one of them big play cards out with something about a mystery on it suggested driscoll you never know what lies at the bottom of these affairs no more you don't that last observation decided spargo moreover the old instinct for getting news began to assert itself all right he said i'll go along with you and relighting his pipe he followed the little cortege through the streets still deserted and quiet and as he walked behind he reflected on the unobtrusive fashion in which murder could stalk about here was the work of murder no doubt and it was being quietly carried along a principal london thoroughfare without fuss or noise by officials to whom the dealing with it was all a matter of routine surely my opinion said a voice at spargo's elbow my opinion is that it was done elsewhere not there he was put there that's what i say spargo turned and saw that the porter was at his side he too was accompanying the body oh said spargo you think i think he was struck down elsewhere and carried there said the porter in somebody's chambers maybe i've known of some queer games in our bit of london well he never came in at my lodge last night i'll stand to that and who is he i should like to know from what i see of him not the sort to be about our place that's what we shall hear presently said spargo they're going to search him but spargo was presently made aware that the searchers had found nothing the police surgeon said that the dead man had without doubt been struck down from behind by a terrible blow which had fractured the skull and caused death almost instantaneously in driscoll's opinion the murder had been committed for the sake of plunder for there was nothing whatever on the body it was reasonable to suppose that a man who was well dressed 
would possess a watch and chain and have money in his pockets and possibly rings on his fingers but there was nothing valuable to be found in fact there was nothing at all to be found that could lead to identification no letters no papers nothing it was plain that whoever had struck the dead man down had subsequently stripped him of whatever was on him the only clue to possible identity lay in the fact that a soft cap of grey cloth appeared to have been newly purchased at a fashionable shop in the west end spargo went home there seemed to be nothing to stop for he ate his food and he went to bed only to do poor things in the way of sleeping he was not the sort to be impressed by horrors but he recognised at last that the morning's event had destroyed his chance of rest he accordingly rose took a cold bath drank a cup of coffee and went out he was not sure of any particular idea when he strolled away from bloomsbury but it did not surprise him when half an hour later he found that he had walked down to the police station near which the unknown man's body lay in the mortuary and there he met driscoll just going off duty driscoll grinned at sight of him you're in luck he said tisn't five minutes since they found a bit of grey writing paper crumpled up in the poor man's waistcoat pocket it had slipped into a crack come in and you'll see it spargo went into the inspector's office in another minute he found himself staring at the scrap of paper there was nothing on it but an address scrawled in pencil ronald breton barrister king's bench walk temple london End of chapter 1chapter two of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two his first brief spargo looked up at the inspector with a quick jerk of his head i know this man he said the inspector showed new interest what mr breton he asked yes i'm on the watchman you know sub-editor i took an article from him the other day article on ideal sites for campers out he came to the office about it so this was in the dead man's pocket found in a hole in his pocket i understand i wasn't present myself it's not much but it may afford some clue to identity spargo picked up the scrap of grey paper and looked closely at it it seemed to him to be the sort of paper that is found in hotels and in clubs it had been torn roughly from the sheet "'What?' he asked meditatively. "'What will you do about getting this man identified?' The inspector shrugged his shoulders. "'Oh, usual thing, I suppose. There'll be publicity, you know. I suppose you'll be doing a special account yourself for your paper, eh? Then there'll be the others, and we shall put out the usual notice. Somebody will come forward to identify. Sure to. And—' A man came into the office— a stolid-faced quiet-mannered soberly attired person who might have been a respectable tradesman out for a stroll and who gave the inspector a sidelong nod as he approached his desk at the same time extending his hand towards the scrap of paper which spargo had just laid down i'll go along to king's bench walk and see mr breton he observed looking at his watch it's just about ten i dare say he'll be there now i'm going there too remarked spargo but as if speaking to himself yes i'll go there 
The newcomer glanced at Spargo and then at the inspector. The inspector nodded at Spargo. Journalist, he said. Mr. Spargo of the Watchman. Mr. Spargo was there when the body was found, and he knows Mr. Breton. And he nodded from Spargo to the stolid-faced person. This is Detective Sergeant Rathbury from the Yard, he said to Spargo. He's come to take charge of this case. No, said Spargo, blankly. I see. What? He went on with sudden abruptness. What shall you do about Breton? Get him to come and look at the body, replied Rathbury. He may know the man, and he mayn't. Anyway, his name and address are here, aren't they? Come along, said Spargo. I'll walk there with you. Spargo remained in a species of brown study all the way along Tudor Street. His companion also maintained silence in a fashion which showed that he was, by nature and custom, a man of few words. It was not until the two were climbing the old balustraded staircase of the house in King's Bench Walk, in which Ronald Breton's chambers were somewhere situate, that Spargo spoke. "'Do you think that old chap was killed for what he may have had on him?' he asked, suddenly turning to the detective. "'I should like to know what he had on him before I answered that question, Mr. Spargo,' replied Rathbury with a smile. "'Yes,' said Spargo dreamily. "'I suppose so. He might have had nothing on him, eh?' The detective laughed and pointed to a board on which names were printed. "'We don't know anything yet, sir.' he observed, except that Mr. Breton is on the fourth floor, by which I conclude that it isn't long since he was eating his dinner. "'Oh, he's young, he's quite young,' said Spargo. "'I should say he's about four-and-twenty. I've met him only—' At that moment the unmistakable sounds of girlish laughter came down the staircase. Two girls seemed to be laughing. Presently masculine laughter mingled with the lighter feminine. "'Seems to be studying law in very pleasant fashion up here, anyway,' said Rathbury. "'Mr. Breton's chambers, too, and the door's open.' The outer oak door of Ronald Breton's chambers stood thrown wide. The inner one was well ajar. Through the opening thus made, Spargo and the detective obtained a full view of the interior of Mr. Ronald Breton's rooms. There, against the background of law-books, bundles of papers tied up with pink tape— and black-framed pictures of famous legal notables, they saw a pretty, vivacious-eyed girl, who, perched on a chair, wigged and gowned, and flourishing a mass of crisp paper, was haranguing an imaginary judge and jury, to the amusement of a young man, who had his back to the door, and of another girl who leant confidentially against his shoulder. "'I put it to you, gentlemen of the jury. I put it to you with confidence, feeling that you must be— must necessarily be some perhaps brothers perhaps husbands and fathers can you on your consciences do my client the great wrong the irreparable injury the the think of some more adjectives exclaimed the young man hot and strong uns pile em up that's what they like they hello this exclamation arose from the fact that at this point of the proceedings the detective rapped at the inner door and then put his head round its edge, whereupon the young lady who was orating from the chair jumped hastily down, and the other young lady withdrew from the young man's protecting arm. There was a feminine giggle and a feminine swishing of skirts, and a hasty bolt into an inner room. 
and Mr. Ronald Breton came forward, blushing a little, to greet the interrupter. "'Come in, come in!' he exclaimed hastily. "'I—' Then he paused, catching sight of Spargo, and held out his hand with a look of surprise. "'Oh, Mr. Spargo!' he said. "'How do you do? We—I—' "'We were just having a lark. I'm off to court in a few minutes. What can I do for you, Mr. Spargo?' He had backed to the inner door as he spoke, and he now closed it and turned again to the two men, looking from one to the other. The detective, on his part, was looking at the young barrister. He saw a tall, slimly built youth, of handsome features and engaging presence, perfectly groomed and immaculately garbed, and having upon him a general air of well-to-do-ness, and he formed the impression from these matters that Mr. Breton was one of those fortunate young men who may take up a profession but are certainly not dependent upon it. He turned and glanced at the journalist. "'How do you do?' said Spargo slowly. "'I—the fact is, I came here with Mr. Rathbury. He wants to see you. Detective Sergeant Rathbury, of New Scotland Yard.' Spargo pronounced this formal introduction as if he were repeating a lesson, but he was watching the young barrister's face and Breton turned to the detective with a look of surprise. "'Oh,' he said, "'you wish—' Rathbury had been fumbling in his pocket for the scrap of grey paper, which he had carefully bestowed in a much-worn memorandum-book. "'I wish to ask a question, Mr. Breton,' he said. "'This morning, about a quarter to three, a man—elderly man—was found dead in Middle Temple Lane, and there seems little doubt that he was murdered.' mr spargo here he was present when the body was found soon after corrected spargo a few minutes after when this body was examined at the mortuary continued rathbury in his matter-of-fact business-like tones nothing was found that could lead to identification the man appears to have been robbed there was nothing whatsoever on him but this bit of torn paper which was found in a hole in the lining of his waistcoat pocket it's got your name and address on it, Mr. Breton. See? Ronald Breton took the scrap of paper and looked at it with knitted brows. By Jove, he muttered, so it has. That's queer. What's he like, this man? Rathbury glanced at a clock which stood on the mantelpiece. Will you step round and take a look at him, Mr. Breton? he said. It's close by. Well, I... The fact is, I've got a case on in Mr. Justice Burroughs' court. Breton answered, also glancing at his clock. "'But it won't be called until after eleven. "'Well, plenty of time, sir,' said Rathbury. "'It won't take you ten minutes to go round and back again. "'A look will do. "'You don't recognise this handwriting, I suppose?' Breton still held the scrap of paper in his fingers. He looked at it again, intently. "'No,' he answered. "'I don't. "'I don't know it at all. "'I can't think, of course, who this man could be.' to have my name and address. I thought he might have been some country solicitor wanting my professional services, you know. He went on with a shy smile at Spargo. But three, three o'clock in the morning, eh? The doctor, observed Rathbury, the doctor thinks he had been dead about two and a half hours. Breton turned to the inner door. Uh, I'll just tell these ladies I'm going out for a quarter of an hour, he said. They're going over to the court with me. I got my first brief yesterday, he went on with a broyish laugh, glancing right and left at his visitors. It's nothing much, small case, 
but i promised my fiancée and her sister that they should be present you know a moment he disappeared into the next room and came back a moment later in all the glory of a new silk hat spargo a young man who was never very particular about his dress began to contrast his own attire with the butterfly appearance of this youngster he had been quick to notice that the two girls who had whisked into the inner room had been similarly garbed in fine raiment more characteristic of mayfair than of fleet street already he felt a strange curiosity about breton and about the young ladies whom he heard talking behind the inner door well come on said breton let's go straight there the mortuary to which rathbury led the way was cold drab repellent to the general gay sense of the summer morning spargo shivered involuntarily as he entered it and took a first glance around but the young barrister showed no sign of feeling or concern he looked quickly about him and stepped alertly to the side of the dead man from whose face the detective was turning back a cloth he looked steadily and earnestly at the fixed features then he drew back shaking his head no he said with decision don't know him don't know him from adam never set eyes on him in my life that i know of rathbury replaced the cloth i didn't suppose you would he remarked well i expect we must go on the usual lines somebody'll identify him you say he was murdered said breton is that certain rathbury jerked his thumb at the corpse the back of his skull is smashed in he said laconically the doctor says he must have been struck down from behind and a fearful blow too i'm much obliged to you mr breton oh all right said breton well you know where to find me if you want me i shall be curious about this good-bye good-bye mr spargo the young barrister hurried away and rathbury turned to the journalist i didn't expect anything from that he remarked however it was a thing to be done you were going to write about this for your paper spargo nodded well continued rathbury i've sent a man to fiskie's the hatters where the cap came from you know we may get a bit of information from that quarter it's possible if you like to meet me here at twelve o'clock i'll tell you anything i've heard just now i'm going to get some breakfast i'll meet you here said spargo at twelve o'clock he watched rathbury go away round the corner he himself suddenly set off round another he went to the watchman office wrote a few lines which he enclosed in an envelope for the day editor and went out again somehow or other his feet led him up fleet street and before he quite realised what he was doing he found himself turning into the law courts End of chapter two chapter three of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three the clue of the cap having no clear conception of what had led him to these scenes of litigation spargo went wandering aimlessly about in the great hall and the adjacent corridors until an official who took him to be lost asked him if there was any particular part of the building he wanted for a moment spargo stared at the man as if he did not comprehend his question then his mental powers reasserted themselves isn't mr justice borrow sitting in one of the courts this morning he suddenly asked number seven replied the official 
"'What's your case when it's down?' "'I haven't got a case,' said Spargo. "'I'm a pressman, reporter, you know.' The official stuck out a finger. "'Round the corner, first to your right, second on the left,' he said automatically. "'You'll find plenty of room. Nothing much doing there this morning.' He turned away, and Spargo recommenced his apparently aimless perambulation of the dreary, depressing corridors. "'Upon my honour," he muttered, "'upon my honour, I really don't know what I've come up here for. "'I've no business here.' Just then he turned a corner and came face to face with Ronald Breton. The young barrister was now in his wig and gown and carried a bundle of papers tied up with pink tape. He was escorting two young ladies who were laughing and chattering as they tripped along at his side. And Spargo, glancing at them meditatively, instinctively told himself which of them it was that he and Rathbury had overheard as she made her burlesque speech. It was not the elder one, who walked by Ronald Breton, with something of an air of proprietorship, but the younger, the girl with the laughing eyes and the vivacious smile. And it suddenly dawned upon him that somewhere, deep within him, there had been a notion, a hope, of seeing this girl again. Why, he could not then think. Spargo, thus coming face to face with these three, mechanically lifted his hat. Breton stopped, half inquisitive. His eyes seemed to ask a question. Yes, said Spargo. I, the fact is, I remembered that you said you were coming up here, and I came after you. I want, when you've time, to have a talk, to ask you a few questions. About this affair of the dead man, you know. Breton nodded. He tapped Spargo on the arm. "'Look here,' he said. "'When this case of mine is over, I can give you as much time as you like. Can you wait a bit? Yes? Well, I say, do me a favour. I was taking these young ladies round to the gallery, round there and up the stairs, and I'm a bit pressed for time. I've a solicitor waiting for me. You take them, there's a good fellow. Then, when the case is over, bring them down here, and you and I will talk. Here, I'll introduce you all. No ceremony.' "'Miss Aylmore, Miss Jessie Aylmore, Mr. Spargo of the Watchman. Now, I'm off.' Breton turned on the instant, his gown whisked round the corner, and Spargo found himself staring at two smiling girls. He saw then that both were pretty and attractive, and that one seemed to be the elder by some three or four years. "'That is very cool of Ronald,' observed the elder young lady. "'Perhaps his scheme doesn't fit in with yours, Mr. Spargo.' "'Pray don't—' "'Oh, it's all right,' said Spargo, feeling himself uncommonly stupid. "'I've nothing to do. "'But where did Mr. Breton say you wished to be taken?' "'Into the gallery of Number 7 Court,' said the younger girl promptly. "'Round this corner, I think I know the way.' Spargo, still marvelling at the rapidity with which affairs were moving that morning, bestirred himself to act as Cicerone, and presently led the two young ladies to the very front— of one of those public galleries from which idlers and specially interested spectators may see and hear the proceedings which obtain in the badly ventilated, ill-lighted tanks wherein justice is dispensed at the law courts. There was no one else in that gallery. The attendant in the corridor outside seemed to be vastly amazed that anyone should wish to enter it, and he presently opened the door, beckoned to Spargo, and came halfway down the stairs to meet him. "'Nothing much going on here this morning,' he whispered behind a raised hand. 
But there's a nice breech case in number five. Get you three good seats there, if you like. Spargo declined this tempting offer and went back to his charges. He had decided by that time that Miss Aylmore was about twenty-three and her sister about eighteen. He also thought that young Breton was a lucky dog to be in possession of such a charming future wife and an equally charming sister-in-law and he dropped into a seat at Miss Jessie Aylmore's side, and looked around him as if he were much awed by his surroundings. "'I suppose one can talk until the judge enters,' he whispered. "'Is this really Mr. Breton's first case?' "'He's very first, all on his own responsibility, anyway,' replied Spargo's companion, smiling. "'And he's very nervous. And so's my sister, aren't you now, Evelyn?' Evelyn Aylmore looked at Spargo and smiled quietly. "'I suppose one's always nervous about first appearances,' she said. "'However, I think Ronald's got plenty of confidence, and, as he says, it's not much of a case. It isn't even a jury case. I'm afraid you'll find it dull, Mr. Spargo. It's only something about a promissory note.' "'Oh, I'm all right, thank you,' replied Spargo, unconsciously falling back on a favourite formula. I always like to hear lawyers. They manage to say such a lot about... about... About nothing, said Jessie Aylmore. But there, so do gentlemen who write for the papers, don't they? Spargo was about to admit that there was a good deal to be said on that point, when Miss Aylmore suddenly drew her sister's attention to a man who had just entered the well of the court. Look, Jessie, she observed, there's Mr. Elphick. Spargo looked down at the person indicated, an elderly, large-faced, smooth-shaven man, a little inclined to stoutness, who, wigged and gowned, was slowly making his way to a corner seat just outside that charmed inner sanctum wherein only King's counsel are permitted to sit. He dropped into this in a fashion which showed that he was one of those men who loved personal comfort. He bestowed his plump person at the most convenient angle, and fitting a monocle in his right eye, glanced around him. There were a few of his professional brethren in his vicinity. There were half a dozen solicitors and their clerks, in conversation with one or other of them. There were court officials. But the gentleman of the monocle swept all these with an indifferent look, and cast his eyes upward until he caught sight of the two girls. Thereupon he made a most gracious bow in their direction, his broad face beamed in a genial smile, and he waved a white hand. "'Do you know Mr. Elphick, Mr. Spargo?' inquired the younger Miss Aylmore. "'I rather think I've seen him somewhere about the temple,' answered Spargo. "'In fact, I'm sure I have.' "'His chambers are in paper buildings,' said Jessie. "'Sometimes he gives tea-parties in them. "'He is Ronald's guardian, and preceptor, and mentor, and all that,' and I suppose he's dropped into this court to hear how his pupil goes on. "'Here is Ronald,' whispered Miss Aylmore. "'And here,' said her sister, "'is his lordship looking very cross. "'Now, Mr. Spargo, you're in for it.' Spargo, to tell the truth, paid little attention to what went on beneath him. The case which young Breton presently opened was a commercial one, involving certain rights and properties in a promissory note. It seemed to the journalist that Breton dealt with it very well, showing himself master of the financial details and speaking with readiness and assurance. 
he was much more interested in his companions and especially in the younger one and he was meditating on how he could improve his further acquaintance when he awoke to the fact that the defence realising that it stood no chance had agreed to withdraw and that mr justice borrow was already giving judgment in ronald breton's favour in another minute he was walking out of the gallery in rear of the two sisters very good very good indeed he said absent-mindedly i thought he put his facts very clearly and concisely downstairs in the corridor ronald breton was talking to mr elphick he pointed a finger at spargo as the latter came up with the girls spargo gathered that breton was speaking of the murder and of his spargo's connection with it and directly they approached he spoke this is mr spargo sub-editor of the watchman breton said mr elphick mr spargo i was just telling mr elphick spargo that you saw this poor man soon after he was found spargo glancing at mr elphick saw that he was deeply interested the elderly barrister took him literally by the buttonhole my dear sir he said you saw this poor fellow lying dead in the third entry down middle temple lane the third entry eh yes replied spargo simply i saw him it was the third entry singular said mr elphick musingly i know a man who lives in that house in fact i visited him last night and did not leave until nearly midnight and this unfortunate man had mr ronald breton's name and address in his pocket spargo nodded he looked at breton and pulled out his watch just then he had no idea of playing the part of informant to mr elphick yes that's so he answered shortly then looking at breton significantly he added if you can give me those few minutes now yes yes responded ronald breton nodding i understand evelyn i'll leave you and jessie to mr elphick i must go mr elphick seized spargo once more my dear sir he said eagerly do you do you think i could possibly see the body it's at the mortuary answered spargo i don't know what their regulations are then he escaped with breton they had crossed fleet street and were in the quieter shades of the temple before spargo spoke about what i wanted to say to you he said at last it was this i-well i've always wanted as a journalist to have a real big murder case i think this is one i want to go right into it thoroughly first and last and i think you can help me how do you know that it is a murder case asked breton quietly it's a murder case answered spargo stolidly i feel it instinct perhaps i'm going to ferret out the truth and it seems to me he paused and gave his companion a sharp glance it seems to me he presently continued that the clue lies in that scrap of paper that paper and that man are connecting links between you and somebody else possibly agreed breton you want to find the somebody else i want you to help me to find the somebody else answered spargo i believe this is a big very big affair i want to do it i don't believe in police methods much by the by i'm just going to meet rathbury he may have heard of something 
Would you like to come? Breton ran into his chambers in King's Bench Walk, left his gown and wig, and walked round with Spargo to the police office. Rathbury came out as they were stepping in. Oh, he said, ah, I've got what may be helpful, Mr. Spargo. I told you I'd sent that man to Fiskey's, the hatter. Well, he's just returned. The cap which the dead man was wearing was bought at Fiskey's yesterday afternoon, and it was sent to Mr. Marbury, room 20, at the Anglo-Orient Hotel. Where is that? asked Spargo. Waterloo District, answered Rathbury. A small house, I believe. Well, I'm going there. Are you coming? Yes, replied Spargo. Of course. And Mr. Breton wants to come, too. If I'm not in the way, said Breton. Rathbury laughed. Well, we may find out something about this scrap of paper, he observed, and he waved a signal to the nearest taxicab driver. End of chapter 3Chapter Four of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, The Anglo-Orient Hotel. The house at which Spargo and his companions presently drew up was an old-fashioned place in the immediate vicinity of Waterloo Railway Station, a plain-fronted, four-square erection, essentially mid-Victorian in appearance and suggestive somehow of the very early days of railway travelling. Anything more in contrast with the modern ideas of a hotel, it would have been difficult to find in London, and Ronald Breton said so as he and the others crossed the pavement. And yet a good many people used to favour this place on their way to and from Southampton in the old days, remarked Rathbury, and I dare say that old travellers, coming back from the east after a good many years' absence, still rush in here. You see, it's close to the station, and travellers have a knack of walking into the nearest place when they've a few thousand miles of steamboat and railway train behind them. Look there now. They had crossed the threshold as the detective spoke, and as they entered a square, heavily furnished hall, he made a sidelong motion of his head towards a bar on the left, wherein stood or lounged a number of men, who from their general appearance, their slouched hats, and their bronzed faces appeared to be colonials, or, at any rate, to have spent a good part of their time beneath oriental skies. There was a murmur of tongues that had a colonial accent in it, an aroma of tobacco that suggested Sumatra and Trachinopoly, and Rathbury wagged his head sagely. "'Lay you anything the dead man was a colonial, Mr. Spargo,' he remarked. "'Well, now, I suppose that's the landlord and landlady.' There was an office facing them at the rear of the hall, and a man and woman were regarding them from a box window which opened above a ledge on which lay a register book. They were middle-aged folk, the man a fleshy, round-faced, somewhat pompous-looking individual, who might at some time have been a butler, the woman a tall, spare-figured, thin-featured, sharp-eyed person, who examined the newcomers with an inquiring gaze. Rathbury went up to them with easy confidence. "'You the landlord of this house, sir?' he asked. "'Mr. Walters?' "'Just so. And Mrs. Walters, I presume?' The landlord made a stiff bow and looked sharply at his questioner. "'What can I do for you, sir?' he inquired. "'A little matter of business, Mr. Walters,' replied Rathbury, pulling out a card. 
"'You see there who I am, Detective Sergeant Rathbury of the Yard. "'This is Mr. Frank Spargo, a newspaper man. "'This is Mr. Ronald Breton, a barrister.' "'The landlady, hearing their names and description, "'pointed to a side door and signed Rathbury and his companions to pass through. "'Obeying her pointed finger, they found themselves in a small, private parlour. "'Walters closed the two doors which led into it and looked at his principal visitor.' "'What is it, Mr. Rathbury?' he inquired. "'Anything wrong?' "'We want a bit of information,' answered Rathbury, almost with indifference. "'Did anybody of the name of Marbury put up here yesterday? "'Elderly man, grey hair, fresh complexion?' Mrs. Walters started, glancing at her husband. "'There!' she exclaimed. "'I knew some inquiry would be made. "'Yes, and Mr. Marbury took a room here yesterday morning,' just after the noon train got in from Southampton. Number 20 he took, but he didn't use it last night. He went out, very late, and he never came back. Rathbury nodded. Answering a sign from the landlord, he took a chair, and, sitting down, looked at Mrs. Walters. "'What made you think some inquiry would be made, ma'am?' he asked. "'Had you noticed anything?' Mrs. Walters seemed a little confused by this direct question. Her husband gave a vent to a species of growl. "'Nothing to notice,' he muttered. "'Her way of speaking, that's all.' "'Well, why I said that was this,' said the landlady. "'He happened to tell us, did Mr. Marbury, "'that he hadn't been in London for over twenty years "'and couldn't remember anything about it. "'Him,' he said, "'never having known much about London at any time.' And, of course, when he went out so late and never came back, why, naturally, I thought something had happened to him, and that there'd be inquiries made. "'Just so, just so,' said Rathbury. "'So you would, ma'am, so you would. Well, something has happened to him. He's dead. What's more, there's strong reason to think he was murdered.' Mr. and Mrs. Walters received this announcement with proper surprise and horror, and the landlord suggested a little refreshment to his visitors. Spargo and Breton declined, on the ground that they had work to do during the afternoon. Rathbury accepted it, evidently as a matter of course. "'My respects,' he said, lifting his glass. "'Well, now, perhaps you'll just tell me what you know of this man.' "'I may as well tell you, Mr. and Mrs. Walters, "'that he was found dead in Middle Temple Lane this morning, "'at a quarter to three, "'that there wasn't anything on him but his clothes "'and a scrap of paper which bore this gentleman's name and address, "'that this gentleman knows nothing whatever of him, "'and that I traced him here because he bought a cap "'at a West End Hatter's yesterday "'and had it sent to your hotel.' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Walters quickly, "'that's so.' "'and he went out in that cap last night. "'Well, we don't know much about him. "'As I said, he came in here about a quarter past twelve yesterday morning "'and booked number twenty. "'He had a porter with him that brought a trunk and a bag. "'They're in twenty now, of course. "'He told me that he had stayed at this house over twenty years ago "'on his way to Australia. "'That, of course, was long before we took it. "'And he signed his name in the book as John Marbury.' "'You'll look at that, if you please,' said Rathbury. "'Walters fetched in the register and turned the leaf to the previous day's entries. "'They all bent over the dead man's writing. "'John Marbury, Coolambidgee, New South Wales,' said Rathbury. 
"'Ah, now I was wondering if that writing would be the same "'as that on the scrap of paper, Mr. Breton. "'But, you see, it isn't. It's quite different.' "'Quite different,' said Breton. "'He, too, was regarding the handwriting with great interest, "'and Rathbury noticed his keen inspection of it "'and asked another question. "'Ever seen that writing before?' he suggested. "'Never,' answered Breton. "'And yet there's something very familiar about it.' "'Then the probability is that you have seen it before,' remarked Rathbury. "'Well, now we'll hear a little more about Marbury's doings here. "'Just tell me all you know, Mr. and Mrs. Walters.' "'My wife knows most,' said Walters. "'I scarcely saw the man. I don't remember speaking with him.' "'No,' said Mrs. Walters, "'you didn't. You weren't much in his way. "'Well,' she continued, "'I showed him up to his room. He talked a bit.' "'said he just landed at Southampton from Melbourne.' "'Did he mention his ship?' asked Rathbury. "'But if he didn't, it doesn't matter, for we can find out.' "'I believe the name's on his things,' answered the landlady. "'There are some labels of that sort. "'Well, he asked for a chop to be cooked for him at once, as he was going out. "'He had his chop, and he went out at exactly one o'clock, "'saying to me that he expected he'd get lost, "'as he didn't know London well at any time.' and shouldn't know it at all now. He went outside there. I saw him, looked about him, and walked off towards Blackfriars Way. During the afternoon, the cap you spoke of came for him from Fisky's. So, of course, I judged he'd been Piccadilly Way. But he himself never came in until ten o'clock, and then he brought a gentleman with him. Aye, said Rathbury. A gentleman now. Did you see him? just replied the landlady they went straight up to twenty and i just caught a mere glimpse of the gentleman as they turned up the stairs a tall well-built gentleman with a grey beard very well dressed as far as i could see with a top hat and a white silk muffler round his throat and carrying an umbrella and they went to marbury's room said rathbury what then "'Well, then, Mr. Marbury rang for some whisky and soda,' continued Mrs. Walters. "'He was particular to have a decanter of whisky. "'That and a siphon of soda were taken up there. "'I heard nothing more until nearly midnight. "'Then the hall-porter told me that the gentleman in twenty had gone out "'and had asked him if there was a night-porter, as of course there is. "'He went out about half-past eleven. "'And the other gentleman?' asked Rathbury. The other gentleman, answered the landlady, went out with him. The hall-porter said they turned towards the station. And that was the last anybody in this house saw of Mr. Marbury. He certainly never came back. That, observed Rathbury, with a quiet smile, that is quite certain, ma'am. Well, I suppose we'd better see this number 20 room and have a look at what he left there. Everything, said Mrs. Walters. It's just as he left it. "'Nothing's been touched.' "'It seemed to two of the visitors that there was little to touch. "'On the dressing-table lay a few ordinary articles of toilet, "'none of them of any quality or value. "'The dead man had evidently been satisfied with the plain necessities of life. "'An overcoat hung from a peg. "'Rathbury, without ceremony, went through its pockets. "'Just as unceremoniously he proceeded to examine trunk and bag, and finding both unlocked, he laid out on the bed every article they contained, and examined each separately and carefully. 
he found nothing whereby he could gather any clue to the dead owner's identity there you are he said making an end of his task you see it's just the same with these things as with the clothes he had on him there are no papers there's nothing to tell who he was what he was after where he'd come from though that we may find out in other ways but it's not often that a man travels without some clue to his identity beyond the fact that some of this linen was you see bought in melbourne we know nothing of him yet he must have had papers and money on him did you see anything of his money now ma'am he asked suddenly turning to mrs walters did he pull out his purse in your presence now yes answered the landlady with promptitude he came into the bar for a drink after he'd been up to his room he pulled out a handful of gold when he paid for it a whole handful there must have been some thirty to forty sovereigns and half-sovereigns and he hadn't a penny piece on him when found muttered rathbury i noticed another thing too remarked the landlady he was wearing a very fine gold watch and chain and had a splendid ring on his left hand little finger gold with a big diamond in it yes said the detective thoughtfully i noticed that he'd worn a ring and that it had been a bit tight for him well now there's only one thing to ask about did your chambermaid notice if he left any torn paper around tore any letters up or anything like that but the chambermaid produced had not noticed anything of the sort on the contrary the gentleman of number twenty had left his room very tidy indeed sir rathbury intimated that he had no more to ask and nothing further to say just then and he bade the landlord and landlady of the anglo-orient hotel good morning and went away followed by the two young men what next asked spargo as they gained the street the next thing asked rathbury is to find the man with whom marbury left this hotel last night and how's that to be done asked spargo at present replied rathbury i don't know and with a careless nod he walked off apparently desirous of being alone End of chapter four Chapter Five of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. Spargo wishes to specialize. The barrister and the journalist, left thus unceremoniously on a crowded pavement, looked at each other. Breton laughed. "We don't seem to have gained much information," he remarked. "I'm about as wise as ever." "No, wiser." said spargo at any rate i am i know now that this dead man called himself john marbury that he came from australia that he only landed at southampton yesterday morning and that he was in the company last night of a man whom we have had described to us a tall grey-bearded well-dressed man presumably a gentleman breton shrugged his shoulders i should say that description would fit a hundred thousand men in london he remarked exactly so it would answered spargo but we know that it was one of the hundred thousand or half million if you like the thing is to find that one the one and you think you can do it i think i'm going to have a big try at it 
Breton shrugged his shoulders again. What, by going up to every man who answers the description and saying, Sir, are you the man who accompanied John Marbury to the Anglo... Spargo suddenly interrupted him. Look here, he said. Didn't you say that you knew a man who lives in that block in the entry of which Marbury was found? No, I didn't, answered Breton. It was Mr. Elphick who said that. All the same, I do know that man. He's Mr. Cardlestone, another barrister. He and Mr. Elphick are friends. They're both enthusiastic philatelists, stamp collectors, you know. And I dare say Mr. Elphick was round there last night examining something new Cardlestone's got hold of. Why? I'd like to go round there and make some inquiries, replied Spargo. If you'd be kind enough to... Oh, I'll go with you, responded Breton, with alacrity. I'm just as keen about this business as you are, Spargo. I want to know who this man Marbury is, and how he came to have my name and address on him. Now, if I had been a well-known man in my profession, you know, why... Yes, said Spargo, as they got into a cab. Yes, that would have explained a lot. It seems to me that we'll get at the murderer through that scrap of paper a lot quicker than through Rathbury's line. Yes, that's what I think. Breton looked at his companion with interest. But you don't know what Rathbury's line is, he remarked. Yes, I do, said Spargo. Rathbury's gone off to discover who the man is with whom Marbury left the Anglo-Orient Hotel last night. That's his line. "'And you want—' "'I want to find out the full significance of that bit of paper and who wrote it,' answered Spargo. "'I want to know why that old man was coming to you when he was murdered.' Breton started. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'I—I I never thought of that. "'You—you you really think he was coming to me when he was struck down?' "'Certain. Hadn't he got an address in the temple? "'Wasn't he in the temple? "'Of course he was trying to find you.' but the late hour no matter how else can you explain his presence in the temple i think he was asking his way that's why i want to make some inquiries in this block it appeared to spargo that a considerable number of people chiefly of the office-boy variety were desirous of making inquiries about the dead man being luncheon hour that bit of middle temple lane where the body was found was thick with the inquisitive and the sensation-seeker for the news of the murder had spread, and though there was nothing to see but the bare stones on which the body had lain, there were more open mouths and staring eyes around the entry than Spargo had seen for many a day. And the nuisance had become so great that the occupants of the adjacent chambers had sent for a policeman to move the curious away. And when Spargo and his companion presented themselves at the entry, this policeman was being lectured as to his duties by a little wizened-faced gentleman in very snuffy and old-fashioned garments and an ancient silk hat who was obviously greatly exercised by the unwanted commotion drive them all out into the street exclaimed this personage drive them all away constable into fleet street or upon the embankment anywhere so long as you rid this place of them this is a disgrace and an inconvenience a nuisance a "'That's old Cardlestone,' whispered Breton. "'He's always irascible, and I don't suppose we'll get anything out of him.' "'Mr. Cardlestone,' he continued, making his way up to the old gentleman, who was now retreating up the stone steps, brandishing an umbrella as ancient as himself. "'I was just coming to see you, sir. 
"'This is Mr. Spargo, a journalist, who is much interested in this murder. He—' "'I know nothing about the murder, my dear sir,' exclaimed Mr. Hardlestone. "'And I never talk to journalists, a pack of busybodies, sir, saving your presence. "'I'm not aware that any murder has been committed, and I object to my doorway being filled by a pack of office boys and street loungers. "'Murder, indeed. I suppose a man fell down these steps and broke his neck. Drunk, most likely.' He opened his outer door as he spoke, and Breton, with a reassuring smile and a nod at Spargo, followed him into his chambers on the first landing, motioning the journalists to keep at their heels. "'Mr. Elphick tells me that he was with you until a late hour last evening, Mr. Cardlestone,' he said. "'Of course neither of you heard anything suspicious.' "'What should we hear that was suspicious in the temple, sir?' demanded Mr. Cardlestone angrily. "'I hope the temple is free from that sort of thing, young Mr. Breton. "'Your respected guardian and myself had a quiet evening on our usual peaceful pursuits, "'and when he went away, all was as quiet as the grave, sir. "'What may have gone on in the chambers above and around me, I know not. "'Fortunately, our walls are thick, sir, substantial. "'I say, sir, the man probably fell down and broke his neck. "'What he was doing here, I do not presume to say.' "'Well, it's guess, you know, Mr. Cardlestone,' remarked Breton, again winking at Spargo. "'But all that was found on this man was a scrap of paper on which my name and address were written. "'That's practically all that was known of him, except that he'd just arrived from Australia.' Mr. Cardlestone suddenly turned on the young barrister with a sharp, acute glance. "'Eh?' he exclaimed. "'What's this? You say this man had your name and address on him, young Breton? "'Yours?' "'And that he came from Australia?' "'That's so,' answered Breton. "'That's all that's known.' Mr. Cardlestone put aside his umbrella, produced a bandana handkerchief of strong colours, and blew his nose in a reflective fashion. "'That's a mysterious thing,' he observed. "'Um, does Alfred know all that?' Breton looked at Spargo as if he was asking him for an explanation of Mr. Cardlestone's altered manner and Spargo took up the conversation. "'No,' he said, "'all that Mr. Elphick knows is that Mr. Ronald Breton's name and address were on the scrap of paper found on the body. "'Mr. Elphick,' here Spargo paused and looked at Breton. "'Mr. Elphick,' he presently continued, slowly transferring his glance to the old barrister, "'spoke of going to view the body.' "'Ah!' exclaimed Mr. Cardlestone eagerly. "'It can be seen?' "'Then I'll go and see it. Where is it?' Breton started. "'But, my dear sir,' he said, "'why?' Mr. Cardlestone picked up his umbrella again. "'I feel a proper curiosity about a mystery which occurs at my very door,' he said. "'Also, I have known more than one man who went to Australia. "'This might—I say might, young gentleman—might be a man I had once known. "'Show me where the body is.' Breton looked helplessly at Spargo. It was plain that he did not understand the turn that things were taking, but Spargo was quick to seize an opportunity. In another minute he was conducting Mr. Cardlestone through the ins and outs of the temple towards Blackfriars. As they turned into Tudor Street, they encountered Mr. Elphick. "'I'm going to the mortuary,' he remarked. "'So, I suppose, are you, Cardlestone. Has anything more been discovered, young man?' Spargo tried a chance shot, at what he did not know. 
The man's name was Marbury, he said. He was from Australia. He was keeping a keen eye on Mr. Elphick, but he failed to see that Mr. Elphick showed any sign of the surprise which Mr. Cardlestone had exhibited. Rather, he seemed indifferent. Oh, he said, Marbury, I'm from Australia. Well, I should like to see the body. Spargo and Breton had to wait outside the mortuary while the two elder gentlemen went in. There was nothing to be learnt from either when they reappeared. We don't know the man said Mr. Elphick, calmly. As Mr. Cardlestone, I understand, has said to you already, we have no men who went to Australia, and as this man was evidently wandering about the temple, we thought it might have been one of them come back. But we don't recognise him. Couldn't recognise him, said Mr. Cardlestone. No. They went away together arm in arm, and Breton looked at Spargo. "'As if anybody on earth ever fancied they'd recognise him,' he said. "'Well, what are you going to do now, Spargo? I must go.' Spargo, who had been digging his walking-stick into a crack in the pavement, came out of a fit of abstraction. "'I?' he said. "'Oh, I'm going to the office.' And he turned abruptly away, and walking straight off to the editorial rooms at the watchman, made for one in which sat the official guardian of the editor. "'Try to get me a few minutes with the chief,' he said. The private secretary looked up. "'Really important?' he asked. "'Big,' answered Spargo. "'Fix it!' Once closeted with the great man, whose idiosyncrasies he knew pretty well by that time, Spargo lost no time. "'You've heard about this murder in Middle Temple Lane,' he suggested. "'The mere facts,' replied the editor tersely. "'I was there when the body was found,' continued Spargo, "'and gave a brief résumé of his doings. "'I'm certain this is a most unusual affair,' he went on. "'It's as full of mystery as... as it could be. "'I want to give my attention to it. "'I want to specialise on it. "'I can make such a story of it as we haven't had for some time. "'Ages. Let me have it. "'And, to start with, let me have two columns for tomorrow morning. "'I'll make it big.' The editor looked across his desk at Spargo's eager face. "'Your other work?' he said. "'Well in hand,' replied Spargo. "'I'm ahead a whole week, both articles and reviews. I can tackle both.' The editor put his fingertips together. "'Have you got some idea about this young man?' he asked. "'I've got a great idea,' answered Spargo. He faced the great man squarely and stared at him until he brought a smile to the editorial face. "'That's why I want to do it,' he added. "'And it's not mere boasting nor overconfidence. "'I know I shall do it better than anybody else.' "'The editor considered matters for a brief moment. "'You mean to find out who killed this man?' he said at last. "'Spargo nodded his head twice. "'I'll find that out,' he said doggedly. "'The editor picked up a pencil and bent to his desk. "'All right,' he said. "'Go ahead.' You shall have your two columns. Spargo went quietly away to his own nook and corner. He got hold of a block of paper and began to write. He was going to show how to do things. End of chapter 5《Chapter 6 of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 
Witness to a meeting. Ronald Breton walked into the watchman office and into Spargo's room next morning, holding a copy of the current issue in his hand. He waved it at Spargo with an enthusiasm which was almost boyish. "'I say!' he exclaimed. "'That's the way to do it, Spargo. I congratulate you. Yes, that's the way. Certain!' Spargo, idly turning over a pile of exchanges, yawned. "'What way?' he asked indifferently. "'The way you've written this thing up,' said Breton. "'It's a hundred thousand times better than the usual cut-and-dried account of a murder. It's—it's it's like a romance.' "'Merely a new method of giving news,' said Spargo. He picked up a copy of the watchman and glanced at his two columns, which had somehow managed to make themselves into three, viewing the displayed lettering, the photograph of the dead man, the line drawing of the entry in Middle Temple Lane, and the facsimile of the scrap of grey paper with a critical eye. "'Yes, merely a new method,' he continued. "'The question is, will it achieve its object?' "'What's the object?' asked Breton. Spargo fished out a box of cigarettes from an untidy drawer, pushed it over to his visitor, helped himself, and tilting back in his chair, put his feet on his desk. "'The object,' he said dryly, "'oh, well, the object is the ultimate detection of the murderer.' "'You're after that?' "'I'm after that, just that.' "'And not, not simply out to make effective news?' "'I'm out to find the murderer of John Marbury.' said Spargo, deliberately slow in his speech, and I'll find him. "'Well, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of clues so far,' remarked Breton. "'I see nothing. Do you?' Spargo sent a spiral of scented smoke into the air. "'I want to know an awful lot,' he said. "'I'm hungering for news. I want to know who John Marbury is.' I want to know what he did with himself between the time when he walked out of the Anglo-Orient Hotel, alive and well, and the time when he was found in Middle Temple Lane, with his skull beaten in and dead. I want to know where he got that scrap of paper. Above everything, Breton, I want to know what he got to do with you. He gave the young barrister a keen look, and Breton nodded. "'Yes,' he said. "'I confess that's a corker, but I think—' "'Well?' said Spargo. "'I think he may have been a man who had some legal business in hand, or in prospect, and had been recommended to—me,' said Breton. Spargo smiled a little sardonically. "'That's good,' he said. "'You had your very first brief yesterday. "'Come.' "'Your fame isn't blown abroad through all the heights yet, my friend. "'Besides, don't intending clients approach... "'Isn't it strictly etiquette for them to approach? "'Barristers through solicitors?' "'Quite right in both your remarks,' replied Breton good-humouredly. "'Of course, I'm not known a bit, but all the same, "'I've known several cases where a barrister has been approached in the first instance "'and asked to recommend a solicitor. "'Somebody who wanted to do me a good turn.' "'may have given this man my address.' "'Possible,' said Spargo. "'But he wouldn't have come to consult you at midnight. "'Breton, the more I think of it, "'the more I'm certain there's a tremendous mystery in this affair. "'That's why I got the chief to let me write it up, "'as I have done, here. "'I'm hoping that this photograph, 
though to be sure it's of a dead face and this facsimile of the scrap of paper will lead to someone coming forward who can just then one of the uniformed youths who hang about the marble-pillared vestibule of the watchman office came into the room with the unmistakable look and air of one who carries news of moment i dare lay a sovereign to a cent i know what this is muttered spargo in an aside well he said to the boy what is it the messenger came up to the desk mr spargo he said there's a man downstairs who says he wants to see somebody about that murder case that's in the paper this morning sir mr barrett said i was to come to you who is the man asked spargo won't say sir replied the boy i gave him a form to fill up but he said he wouldn't write anything said all he wanted was to see the man who wrote the piece in the paper bring him here commanded spargo he turned to breton when the boy had gone and he smiled i knew we should have somebody here sooner or later he said that's why i hurried over my breakfast and came down at ten o'clock now then what will you bet on the chances of this chap's information proving valuable nothing replied breton he's probably some crank or faddist who's got some theory that he wants to ventilate the man who was presently ushered in by the messenger seemed from preliminary and outward appearance to justify breton's prognostication he was obviously a countryman a tall loosely built middle-aged man yellow of hair blue of eye who was wearing his sunday best array of pearl-grey trousers and black coat and sported a necktie in which were several distinct colours oppressed with the splendour and grandeur of the watchman building he had removed his hard billycock hat as he followed the boy and he ducked his bare head at the two young men as he stepped on to the thick pile of the carpet which made luxurious footing in spargo's room his blue eyes opened to their widest looked round him in astonishment at the sumptuousness of modern newspaper office accommodation how do you do sir said spargo pointing a finger to one of the easy chairs for which the watchman's office is famous i understand that you wish to see me the caller ducked his yellow head again sat down on the edge of the chair put his hat on the floor picked it up again and endeavoured to hang it on his knee and looked at spargo innocently and shyly what i want to see sir he observed in a rustic accent is the gentleman as wrote that piece in your newspaper about this ere murder in middle temple lane you see him said spargo i am that man the caller smiled generously indeed sir he said a very nice bit of reading i'm sure and what might your name be now sir i can always talk freer to a man when i know what his name is so can i answered spargo my name is spargo frank spargo what's yours name of webster sir william webster i farm at one ash farm in gosberton in oakshire me and my wife continued mr webster again smiling and distributing his smile between both his hearers is at present in london on a holiday and very pleasant we find it weather and all that's right said spargo and you wanted to see me about this murder mr webster i did sir me i believe knowing as i think something that'll do for you to put in your paper you see mr spargo it come about in this fashion appen you'll be for me to tell it in my own way that answered spargo is precisely what i desire 
"'Well, to be sure, I couldn't tell it no other,' declared Mr. Webster. "'You see, sir, I read your paper this morning while I was waiting for my breakfast. "'They take their breakfast so late in them hotels. "'And when I'd read it and looked at the pictures, I says to my wife, "'As soon as I've had my breakfast,' I says, "'I'm going to where they print this newspaper to tell them something.' "'Aye,' she says. "'Why, what have you to tell? I should like to know.' "'Just like that, Mr. Spargo.' "'Mrs. Webster,' said Spargo, "'is a lady of business-like principles. "'And what have you to tell?' "'Mr. Webster looked into the crown of his hat, "'looked out of it, and smiled knowingly. "'Well, sir,' he continued, "'last night, my wife, she went out to a part they call Clapham "'to take her tea and supper with an old friend of hers as lives there, "'and as they wanted to have a bit of woman talk like, I didn't go.' So thinks I to myself, I'll go and see this here house of commons. There was a neighbour of mine as told me that all you'd got to do was to tell the policeman at the door that you wanted to see your own member of parliament. So when I got there, I told them that I wanted to see our MP, Mr. Stonewood. You'll have heard tell of him, no doubt. He knows me very well. They passed me, and I wrote out a ticket for him, and they told me to sit down while they found him. "'so I sat down in a grand sort of hall, "'where there are a rare lot of people going and coming "'and some fine pictures and images to look at, "'and for a time I looked at them, "'and then I began to take a bit of notice "'of the folk near at hand, waiting, you know, like myself. "'And as sure as I'm a christened man, sir, "'the gentleman whose picture you've got in your paper, "'him as was murdered, was sitting next to me. "'I knew that picture as soon as I saw it this morning.' Spargo, who had been making unmeaning scribbles on a block of paper, suddenly looked at his visitor. "'What time was that?' he asked. "'It was between a quarter and half-past nine, sir,' answered Mr. Webster. "'It might have been twenty past. It might have been twenty-five past.' "'Go on, if you please,' said Spargo. "'Well, sir, me and this here dead gentleman talked a bit about what a long time it took to get a member to attend to you and such like. "'I made mention of the fact that I hadn't been in there before. "'Neither have I,' he says. "'I came in out of curiosity,' he says. "'And then he laughed, sir, queer-like. "'And it was just after that that what I'm going to tell you about happened.' "'Tell!' commanded Spargo. "'Well, sir, there was a gentleman came along, "'down this grand hall that we were sitting in, "'a tall, handsome gentleman with a grey beard.' He'd no hat on, and he was carrying a lot of paper and documents in his hands, so I thought he was happen one of the members. And all of a sudden, this here man at my side, he jumps up with a sort of start and an exclamation, and... Spargo lifted his hand. He looked keenly at his visitor. "'Now you're absolutely sure about what you heard him exclaim,' he answered. "'Quite sure about it, because I see you're going to tell us what he did exclaim.' "'I'll tell you now but what I'm certain of, sir,' replied Webster. "'What he said as he jumped up was, "'Good God!' he says, sharp-like. "'And then he said a name, and I didn't write catch it. "'But it sounded like Danesworth or Painsworth or something of that sort. "'One of them there, or very like em at any rate. "'And then he rushed up to this here gentleman and laid his hand on his arm, sudden-like. "'And the gentleman?' asked Spargo quietly. "'Well, he seemed taken aback, sir. He jumped, and then he stared at the man. Then they shook hands. 
and then after they'd spoken a few words together like they walked off talking and of course i never saw no more of em but when i saw your paper this morning sir and that picture in it i said to myself that's the man i sat next to in that there hall at the house of commons oh there's no doubt of it sir and suppose you saw a photograph of the tall gentleman with the grey beard suggested spargo could you recognise him from that make no doubt of it sir answered mr webster i observed him particular spargo rose and going over to a cabinet took from it a thick volume the leaves of which he turned over for several minutes come here if you please mr webster he said the farmer went across the room there is a full set of photographs of members of the present house of commons here now pick out the one you saw take your time and be sure he left his caller turning over the album and went back to breton there he whispered getting a bit nearer eh to what asked breton i don't see a sudden exclamation from the farmer interrupted breton's remark this is him sir answered mr webster that's the gentleman know him anywhere the two young men crossed the room the farmer was pointing a stubby finger to a photograph beneath which was written stephen aylmore esq m p for brookminster End of chapter 6